For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is a leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business from the smallest startups to the biggest global enterprises create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. It is a real company, an actual, honest-to-God real company. I'm here with Jessica Cohen, honest-to-God real person. Hi, Jessica. How are you? Hello. I'm great. How are you? I am well. Thanks for coming. been wanting to do this for a while, ever since you became editor-in-chief of Mashable. Executive editor, yeah. Executive editor. Is there there an editor? I fuck up every one of these intros. No, we have a content officer and then the executive editor. So it's like... Do you really need a double chief on the masthead? I, I, these decisions really don't matter. To All right, me, I'm, so. I got your name right, title wrong. I'm one. Newsroom lady. That's. Yep. Uh, you've done many things prior to this. Among them, you were an editor of Gawker.com. I am interviewing mm-hmm. every single former editor of Gawker.com. How does that I'm, make I'm you feel? Through it makes me feel kind of old right now, <laughs> and maybe I should do something else <laughs> in my life. But but it continues to be interesting. So thanks for coming. Gawker.com, Vocative. We were just, mm-hmm. You were just telling me what Vocative was. Uh, you were at Vanity Fair for a cup of coffee. Where else? Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel for five years. Yeah. Do we have your full resume here? Um, I think those are the high points. Okay, yeah. good. So we're done. Oh, New York Thank Mag. Like New I launched Mag. the cut and helped grow Vulture and Daily Intel and all that. You were you were a me- veteran of New York media, digital media. I suppose so. Now that makes me feel old. Yeah. But, sorry. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Why don't we start off with with what you're doing now? Okay. You you are running edit for Mashable. You started right. this last fall. Yes. I remember because I'm very old learning about Mashable back in the MySpace days. Yes. When it was a, like an enthusiast blog and, and for people who were like creating businesses around MySpace and you'd mm-hmm. learn how to, I don't know, funk up your page. And then it became a sort of high-flying digital media operation and right. has now pivoted into video. And you're doing what there? I'm overseeing editorial across all of our platforms. That includes the website. It also means Snapchat and Facebook. I basically, like in a nutshell, every day I'm determining uh, our editorial priorities and story selection and voice based on this pivot and the focus of the brand and deciding what we should do and what should we cover, how should we tell this story, and doing it in a way that makes sense for what Mashable is. So explain what Mashable is today, because I'm a little confused. (laughs) I think I know, but you tell me. Oh, you think you know. Okay, well, we can argue. Um, But Mashable is a culture, entertainment, and tech site. We target, you know, you say enthusiast, and I'll say passionate. We target passionate readers who are obsessed with whatever given topic that they cluster around. For us, it's a lot of web culture. We find that there are huge obsessive communities around entertainment. And then, you know, the tech stuff has always been part of Mashable's DNA. So we live where those three come together. And we choose to focus on stories that have audiences that are really, really devoted to them. So what's so, a devoted audience? A devoted audience would be, uh, you know, the Star Trek fans, the Game of Thrones fans, everybody who cares about the retro Nokia phone, uh, 
you know, web culture. It could be. And are people. those moving targets, or do you have like do you have someone who's like writing about Game of Thrones daily, or at least daily during? The if season? there's something to write about, yeah, sure. But we're not doing recaps, and we're not doing. Or you know, we'll do a recap of Game of Thrones, but I'm more concerned about that recap not telling readers what happened because they yeah. already watched it and they already talked about it on Twitter. So I want that recap to kind of bring some analysis to it, maybe bring in random theories, uh, pointing out Easter eggs, that sort of thing. So it strikes me that it's a, a general interest publication for for the internet. Is that fair? Are you comfortable with that? We don't really cover news right? in the traditional sense anymore. We don't do incremental news hits. We don't really cover politics or you know, global developments. I just read an awesome uh, Kellyanne Conway story on Mashable. Right. Because um, you flagged it for me because I had an awesome headline. Do you know what the headline was? (laughs) It was uh, something along the lines of the real reason Kellyanne Conway was sitting on this couch. Oh, Lord, this story is so dumb. Yeah, it's great. It's (laughs) awesome. I would not call that a news hit. No. (laughs) No, but it's, you know, this is a thing in the news. We're writing about it. We're writing about it with a Mashable sensibility, which is now, I think, uh, Jessica Cohen sensibility. Well, I, like I can't take full credit for that. I have a newsroom full of talented But, but you're, you're but... sharpening it, right? Like it, it's, yeah, it, yeah. I think of Mashable generally, um, pre, pre-Jessica, it was Je- Mashable had a more of a sort of bland, generally enthusiastic attitude about the internet. It seems like you've, you've sharpened that. Uh, am am not, I making I, that up in my head? <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you whether or not you're making up an opinion. Yeah. I, would, I would argue that it was never bland, but it was certainly more broad. And uh, in terms of just editorial strategy right now and forevermore, it makes sense to just focus. You can't be everything to everyone. You're not going to win that game. If you try and cover everything, you own nothing. So my mission is very much to decide what we own and how we own it. And so, and, and was that your battle plan coming in? Let's, let's sharpen it. Let's narrow it. Let's focus on Yeah, I mean, that things. was a very much established before I came on. That was the battle plan that was communicated almost a year ago at this point. So I you know, had the imperative. Like I, I had the mandate, and I knew what we were going for, and I was you know, very uh, luckily given the opportunity to kind of find a way to reach that point in my own style. So let's let's set up the the context. So Paul Cashmore, Pete, Pete Cashmore, and titles, founders. If you gave me a Google, I'd do this much better. Um, he created Mashable <laughs> when he was like four or five years old. Something like that, yeah. Um, I don't do well with dates either. Scotland. Um, Scotland um, famously sold the company to CNN uh, years ago. Felix Salmon reported on Reuters. Reuters sent out a press release saying Felix had a big scoop. It's a joke because they yes. did not actually sell it. I'm giving you this look trying to yeah. figure out how wrong are you this yeah, but, morning. But that, that Reuters, Reuters actually put that out. <laughs> Remember the press release? It was Felix sort of half drunk standing up in Austin saying, half I drunk. heard they sold for $200 million. It's a terrible Felix. I don't, don't want to make too. a Felix joke. Felix came to our conference. He's great. Yes. Um, but anyway, so so Pete Cashmore still owns it. Tom Warner's invested. Uh, last year, they went through a pivot. You, you alluded yes. to a pivot. They laid off some people. They said, we're going to refocus uh, on video, mm-hmm. um, which is what everyone says they're going to focus on. Right. And, uh, lots of eyes rolled at that point. So, All right. <laughs> yes, you're going to pursue the big video opportunity. Um, but th- so when you joined, I was sort of surprised because I thought, all right, Jess is really good with words. She doesn't strike me as a video person. Um, what was the pitch to bring to bring you there, and especially given a site that had sort of lurched around over the last year? I will say, let me start by saying I can't take credit for video. Video is run yeah. out of our studio's right. operation, and there is an editorial video team here in New York, and I work with them. Right, so when a company says, we're focusing on video, right. and then they bring you in, how does that work? I mean, sure, we're focusing on investing resources in platform-first opportunities and video, but that doesn't change the fact that Mashable is this 
large media and entertainment company. And part of that, a large part of that, perhaps the biggest part of that, it's the words. So it does make sense. You know, the outward facing mashable identities very much defined by what's on the site. And then as we develop platform first stories, they are taking, like those staffers are taking cues and editorial direction from what we're putting on the site. Platform first means you're going to read it on Facebook before you read it on. It's going to be a Snapchat specific story. Right. Yeah. Um, so so you're, do, you're doing the word stuff. And so the, but so the pitch to you was what? Who, who brought you into Mashable? Uh, Greg Gitrich, our CCO, brought me into Mashable. He had uh, I'd worked with him briefly at Vocative prior to that. And the pitch was, you know, here's this large organization full of extremely talented people, and we need someone to lead it. I mean, it was very simple. And it struck me as a really fantastic opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And what was your... I don't want to get you out of the defensive. Um, <laughs> right. So you, you. So you started off as Gawker. Gawker, Gawker is famously snarky and, and, mm-hmm. and gimlet eyed uh, about media broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, or it was. Uh, was. I'm assuming that, that, like a lot of other folks, you looked at Mashable and said, oh, this, is, this, is a, uh, this is kind of a mishmash of, of a site. Did you have to sort of get over that perception? A bit, but I knew where they were headed already, and I'm not going to speak to what was going on prior and that shift. Like that's really not my concern at all. Like not your concern. Not my. I I look ahead at where we're going. So I see the raw materials there. I see that I don't need to reinvent a wheel, which is an ideal situation for me. It's just let's rearrange some spokes. Let's figure out what we can do to have the wheel spinning more effectively. I don't want to keep going with this metaphor. Yeah, we'll stop. (laughs) Um, So what's a day at Mashable? What do you, you start off? Since you're not covering breaking news, there's right. less of like, all right, we know. Right. I'm sure you probably did a how to watch the president streaming mm-hmm. speech. Yeah. Right. Everyone Standard issue. That. Yeah. Um, but sort of, uh, what's 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 the organizing principle for the day? You get up and say, let's write about X, Y, Z. People are pitching you stuff. You've got long term projects. All of the above. Right. So we start the day in a very you know traditional newsroom sense. We have our early morning meeting. All of the senior editors. And uh, I sit around a table and my deputies and whatnot, and they go through and tell us what's on tap for the day. And some stuff I might nix. Often I don't. But like a big part of the job is deciding, especially at this point, what we're not. So a lot of times it's, uh, especially when it comes to breaking news or whatnot, it feels like a little bit of a kill your darling situation. But that's okay. Like that's part of the And you're telling them, don't do this because we can't make it any better than the version. Or this doesn't make sense for us or this doesn't feel right for us. Or if you really want to cover it, you need to give me an angle that I feel like feels mashable to me. So we do this morning meeting and we go through and I get all the pitches for the day. And from those pitches, I put a selected list of what I think are the priorities for the day and what I definitely want to see go up and the stories that we're going to flag for homepage or special promotion or whatnot. So then I send that to the entire staff across like all the platforms. So that is like a slow but steady way to communicate and telegraph what matters and what we want to see and what we what, want more of this yes exactly so that's the start of my day that's what's, day. what's the kind of story they're bringing to you and you're saying no this isn't for us is it this is a story that's popular somewhere else thus we should do it this is a story that's in the news thus we should do it uh it's a combination. A lot of it is editorial inclination, but we're also using data to identify what's surging across the web and what right. people care about. But I don't like none of us worship at the altar of algorithms. Like I just like using data to make informed editorial decisions. I always so. wonder about the what's the uh, there's a, a tool that Facebook just bought. Um, we use it as well, but basically it says, "Hey, this is what's popular on other on, on other internet sites." Right. 
and I get the logic of it. The thing is, uh, if it does well for websites X, Y, and Z, then mm -hmm. you should do it as well. Right. And then I also think, well, what is the purpose of being the fifth version of that story? Well, I, I don't think you want to be the fifth version of just writing that same story. Yeah. But if this is, a, it helps you to identify a topic people care about, and that crowd gives you, tangle. That's what it's called. Crowd tangle. Oh, they bought. Okay, so it's crowd yeah. tangle. There's data miner. Yeah. Then we have uh, our own in-house technology suite, Velocity, and we use that like pretty much constantly. But um, you know, we go through that and we decide what in here makes sense for us. And I don't want to be the fifth person on a story, but if people care about something, let's find a way to talk about it that's at least interesting. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of something. Uh, so Kellyanne Conway is like a version yeah. of that, right? Oh, like Kelly that's a story Conway, everyone's yeah. talking about on the internet. You're probably not the first, second, third, or fourth. I'm probably the 15th. Right. But it was a fun headline, and it was kind of like, oh, God, okay, so here's the story, but seriously, are we talking about this? Yeah. And I love introducing that kind of content to a website because part of what I want Mashable to be and what I tend to do when I take on you know, new positions is uh, I'm really – focus on personality-driven stories and conversational stories. And I very much want our team to come at a lot of what we do with the approach that they might when they're talking about it with the person sitting next to them or at the bar after work. Wait a minute. That sounds like the old gawker ethos. You know, it's funny because I spent a lot of time there. Yeah. But that's the right – it's the don't write it in journalese. Yeah. Don't write the thing don't, – don't, don't copy the cadence and diction of the right. story you just saw. Yeah. Explain it like you would to your friend at yeah. the bar. You know, like, okay, uh, the to go back to that retro Nokia phone, it's got snake. The story is, oh, my God, it's got snake. What I like on Mashable is this was really hard to play, and I'm embarrassed to admit that. You know, that, that, to me, is yeah. a more fun read. Did, um, you, did you say take on repositions a few minutes ago? Take on repositions? No, I just, okay, I misheard it. You, 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 I thought you were saying that you're a, you're a, you're a, a fixer, a fixer-upper of websites. But no, no, I said when I take on, I said when I take on positions like this, right. when I face these sort of projects, I'm not going to call myself a fixer upper. No. Okay, but taking on a position means running a website. So yes. we've done that now yeah. multiple times. Yeah. Um, wait, it's 13 minutes and 35 seconds into it, so we make money from advertising. So we're going to hear from an advertiser, and then we're going to hear about you taking on positions. Okay, Good? I want you to Deal? be able to eat. Do it. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? Whether you're the first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. And if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners will get 60% off. Visit HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator, Gator spelled like alligator, G-A-T-O-R, dot com slash Rico. Hey, guys. You like media and technology, so there's a very good chance that you are going to be at South by Southwest, probably even as you're listening to this podcast. Um, I will be there, along with many of my pals from Recode, and we want to tell you about some cool stuff we're doing there. On Friday, March 10th, I'm interviewing Glenn Beck for this very show, Recode Media. On Saturday, March 11th, Lauren Good and Kara Swisher are going to interview Mary Lou Jepsen from One Laptop Per Child. That's for Too Embarrassed to Ask. On Monday, March 13th, Kara Swisher is going to do a live episode of Recode Decode. I think she's doing that with some folks from Veep, so you should check that out as well. And if that's not enough, our friends from Verge are going to do two full live episodes of Vergecast. That is all happening March 10th through the 14th at the Nat Geo Further Base Camp in downtown Austin. So go to that. Tickets are free. You can come see me or Kara or Lauren or the Verge guys doing this kind of podcast for free, live. 
But wait, there's more. On Tuesday the 14th, Kara's doing another live interview. This one's at the Austin Convention Center with the founders of Crooked Media, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, and John Favreau. You guys have heard John Favreau on this podcast, but go hear him on Kara's podcast. So if you're in town for Austin, probably are, come see us at the Nat Geo Further Base Camp or at South by Southwest itself at the Convention Center. We'll post all the details on Rico.net, so check that out. And we're back with Jessica Cohen, who Hello. is running Mashable. Not running Mashable. Um, it's way up the masthead at Mashable. Um, but I want to talk to you about how you got there. Yeah. Um, we've talked about Gawker a bunch of times. Uh, you were second, third editor of Gawker.com? Third. Uh, I took over in 2004, which was the Stone Age when just one person at a time was running the site. And so, so how did you get that job? Uh, this is like a bloggy dreams come true thing, yeah. and it does not work this way anymore. But I was living in L.A., and uh, I was two years out of college, and I had an incredibly boring desk job. What'd you do? I was an assistant at 20th Century Fox. That's so what everyone moves to L.A. to do is a version of that, right? That, I moved to L.A. to do Teach for America, actually. So I was teaching high school English in South Central. And then after that, I decided, you know, Hollywood, bright lights. I'm um, done. I'm done helping youth. I'm done I, educating. I've, I've earned my get into heaven free card. Now I'm going to go sell out. And <laughs> but, then t- now I'm going to do Hollywood. You know, I was, I, I, I was I wanted to move on from Teach for America. It was not a very well-meaning program, but it wasn't right for me at that time. And I had connection. Like, I need a job. Yeah. I just signed a lease. I had a connection to get an assistant gig. So I was you know, running to the commissary, fetching egg white omelets for my lovely boss while she was stuck in traffic on Benedict Canyon or whatever. It was very LA. So I was there. I was bored out of my mind, spent a lot of time just sitting at the desk browsing the web. And it was during that time that I realized I really wanted to go to J school and I wanted to be in New York. So I put applications out to J school. And in the meantime, I was kind of noticing these blog things, which this is 2004. When this is when not everyone was blogging. It right. required work to blog. There was like 100 people, what, 100 people and it was called the New York blogger scene or whatever. Yeah. And they were all using blogger. Remember blogger? Yep. So I somehow I couldn't tell you what sort of clicking path led me into. But that. you had you you were writing your own stuff on your was there JessicaCohen.com? Yeah, it was not JessicaCohen.com, but yeah, something like that. And you were writing about what? Oh my god, silly, silly stuff. Oh, I went to a Strokes concert, or but I was also you know doing a kind of you know signature snarkyish one-liners on either. Uh, Hollywood news. That and, and was your thought this is job training? This is I'm this is I'm showing my work so someone will hire me, or was this I'm just literally so bored? I'm just going to type stuff. <laughs> I'm literally so bored. Yeah. that I'm going to do this, and I'm I want to go into journalism and professional writing, and like know what I was doing on that site was certainly not journalism, but you know, I've wanted to keep my brain moving, and that was part of it, and it was fun. It was really fun to be writing again. And so, so you're pushing that stuff out, and mm-hmm. then someone sees it in New York City. Yeah, says, it was a very old school ecosystem. Uh, I mean, I can actually trace it. Mark Graham, who is uh, at the Post running yep. Decider, he I found his site because I might have been like a random blogger rotation homepage thing, and I found it, and it was very clear reading his stuff that he was from very close to my hometown in Michigan and was living there. So I was like, hey, what's up? This is random. You know, you don't see a lot of that. And then he linked to my blog one day. And then because he linked to it, uh, 
Blogger X link to it and this and that. And that's and literally how blogging worked. You would link yes. to someone else. You would yes. list a link. You would list a group of people you were linking to. Exactly. A little sort of cabal of people. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I certainly wasn't trying to like work my way up the link ladder, but eventually. But you did. I, I eventually, Corey Sika and Nick Dutton started seeing my stuff. And did you know who they were? Did you know what oh, Gawker God, yeah. was? Yeah. Because yeah. so this is when Gawker, it's hard to remember this now, was a giant deal, even though it was small, mm-hmm. traffic-wise. Very small. For people like you, people like me, like this was sort of what we oriented our world around. Right, right. Um, very inside baseball, obsessive, uh, very fun and focused on micro news in a way that really doesn't happen anymore and probably wouldn't fit with our current climate anyhow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was like a darling website. And they just plucked you and said, come to New York, we'll so pay you very I, little. At that point, I'd been accepted to Columbia for J School and some of my uh, blogger friends, who many of whom I hadn't even met in real life, knew about that. And I received an email from Nick Dunn that said, hey, I uh, heard you're moving to New York. Any plans? I was like, whoa. So I wrote back and I said, actually, I'm going to journalism school. And I I couldn't tell you the exact conversation, but it was something along the lines of, well, that's a shame because <laughs> we were interested in having you come on to Gawker. I said, wow. Like, I, no, I prefer to get really deep in debt. <laughs> like strange, interesting opportunity or $50,000 for one year. Hmm. But uh, I actually went to Columbia. Oh, you did? I did. Well, no, I went to them. I'd already put down my deposit. Sorry, I did not go to Columbia. I went to uh, the powers that be, and I said, I've got this professional opportunity, and is it possible to switch to some sort of part-time program or defer, you know, what can I do here? And they just kind of, like, laughed me off. And that was fine. Gawker was kind of like, you know, this unknown weird quantity at the time. So I just, uh, in the way that only a 24 year old who has nothing to lose can, I thought, you know, why not? Like Columbia's not going anywhere. I can always reapply. And this was just a really interesting, strange opportunity. And it seemed like something that people really cared about and people in the industry I wanted to be a part of cared about. So I went for it. So you show up in New York. You've never been in New York. You didn't live in New York. I I did my teacher training for Teach for America here. So I spent six weeks in uh, Mott Haven and that was it. Your your entire experience in New York is six weeks doing Teach for America training. And now you're (laughs) supposed to be this New York insider. Right media person. (laughs) And by the way, people are paying attention to you, right? It was absurd. Because Condé Nast people are reading you and whoever. um, So what is that experience like when you get dropped into that world? Um, And and you run run all of Gawker because you are all of Gawker. Right. There is Um, no other thing. There is no other thing. No. Uh, It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. And I think you could look back on what I did those first six months and it's no like secret here that I had no idea what I was doing. Nick very much loved the idea of an outsider and that outside perspective, um, the observer of these things. But I didn't even necessarily have the context to make uh, informed commentary on, you know, what I was observing. Mm -hmm. So it was a bumpy first stretch there. And I have to give credit to Nick to this day for not canning me because he certainly would have been justified in doing so. How long did you spend there? Two years. Two years. What was was the highlight slash low light? Oh, God. Um... It was so long ago that I couldn't tell you a low light. Just yeah. maybe various nights where I would come home from something and have an email from Nick at 2 a.m. You know, it was like 25. I was staying out all night. And I'd be like, oh, my God, it's 3 a.m. I've been drinking and I have to write this thing about this thing that happened at Soho House. Some, so-and-so got a pie in their face. And then Nick got a pie in his face. And what am I doing? It was that kind of thing. I would say that's not necessarily like 
a gawker low, but like at that age, it was I was going to say, yeah, you got sued by so-and-so or... Uh, no, no lawsuits. No? Uh, there was like a, a very strange um, Fred Durst incident where like we oh, got good. a C and D from his from his people, and then I wrote this kind of unhinged... Oh, was there a sex tape? Yeah. And so I, there was a I, Fred Durst sex tape, and I remember this. Yeah, and yeah. we hosted it for like, I don't know, maybe six minutes. And oh, it always comes back to a sex tape. It doesn't it? Yeah. yeah huh. um, so I think I had it up for maybe six minutes, and I took it down, and we got a, uh, a letter from his legal team, and I responded with this completely unhinged, nonsensical, how dare you, sir, sort of thing. <laughs> and the next day, he sent flowers and an apology. Oh, it's great. <laughs> like, it was just so different. Then. I love Fred I mean, Durst. My In God. my mind, I love Fred can, Durst. Can you imagine that now? It never happened now. No. Certainly not. <laughs> no, now Fred Durst would continue to sue you I, and Peter Thiel would back his I know. The stakes were very, and, very different then. Yeah, I mean, Gawker used to like publish the, mm-hmm. the lawyer's notes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we also published a lot of stuff that we got just from readers. One of my favorite tips was um, we did something called Gawker Stalker, which... Uh, sounds really awful now when you just say those words, but we would just take uh, submissions from readers of who they'd seen about right. town. Like I saw Peter Kafka at Dwayne Reed at 78th in Amsterdam. Least successful gawker stocking ever, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. like you were famous to someone, I'm sure. Like we would get such a wide range of like, you know, right. I, Mike Myers with a hockey stick on Larry's Right, so you side. would encourage people to, to stalk. Literally. Well, I mean, just like I saw this person doing this thing. It's a very New York-y. And this becomes memorialized years later in the newsroom. Yes, it does. The Aaron Sorkin HBO show. I know. It was very strange. Very, very weird. Fantastic. But um, some of my favorite things came from that. Like uh, there was a a very small thing. Someone sent a tip in right after Katrina. Condi Rice was in a very expensive shoe store on the Upper East somewhere. And buying shoes while like New Orleans is imploding and you know just to be able to say like this is what someone's telling us because uh, it was a smaller site it was different really, yeah. I, I know I just said the stakes were different but I I can't overemphasize that um it was very it was a weird time it was a weird time and it was all fun and games till it wasn't right and that by the way the Aaron Sorkin thing the the, the so he repeats a scene where Jimmy Kimmel in real life was taking down a gawk writer who's not you. Right. Right. You were not the person. No. Um, and uh, that was Emily Gould right. who took so over right after me. And he was angry because of a gawker stalker that so I posted. Jimmy Kimmel setting in, sitting in for Larry King attacking right. Emily Gould about one of your items. Yes. And it Years was later mine. becomes an Aaron Sorkin show. That's fantastic. Like if, if we had time, we would, cl- we would stitch in the, the bit from the newsroom. <laughs> we don't have time for that. But you guys should go back and watch it. It's great. Yeah. Um, and so you left. You went to Vanity Fair. I remember from outside going, oh, this is what happens. You, you go to work at Gawker. You probably don't get paid very much. probably get paid very little. Very you work little. your butt off. Everyone in New York media pays attention to you. And then you really launch your career. You move, mm-hmm. you move up. And then you get that big job at Condé Nast. Yeah. Similar to like what the New York Observer used to be. Um, so I assumed, all right, well, that's that's what you're going to do. And then you didn't stay there very long. No, I didn't. Uh, Vanity Fair had always been my dream job, absolutely. So after two years running Gawker, and I still to this day am the longest running Gawker.com editor, which is kind of strange at only two years. But I was definitely burned out. And at the same time, I'd been approached with uh, an opportunity to work at a publication that I'd read growing up that I'd always kind of like, no matter how jaded I'd become about New York media in such a short period of time, there was still kind of this... Right. So two years in New York, you have your dream job. I've got my dream job. And 
at that time, I had come out of Gawker, which was my first media job. And back then, bloggers really did sit in their pajamas and work at home all day. And I came out completely feral. So take that and then put it in Condé Nast and imagine what that was like. <laughs> but I felt that... Or spell out the difference for those for folks uh, did, who haven't I, seen the... Uh... I, I was not quite polished enough yeah. for that environment. I was very young, too. And really, more than anything, I was very impatient about the business of editorial. Because you can learn how to buy whatever boot you need to yeah, wear, Yeah, no, right? it's, it wasn't that. Like, it was more of a, you know... Why um, can't I publish this thing now? Exactly. Why do I got to wait? Yes. Why do I have to wait? Um, and a lot of the why you have to wait even now, 10 years later, are ridiculous. So um, it just wasn't the right fit for me at that time. I still have some really awesome experiences, and I'm very lucky to have spent time there. And it's a great... Uh, what they've done with the website in recent years is... Fantastic. Yeah, it got so, really good in the last year. Yeah, it absolutely has. Um, but so, so that that idea of like, I was a blogger. I thought I wanted to get a big media job. Turns out, I don't want a big media job, or at least you didn't want a big media job. I didn't want Vanity that Fair. big media job. And then, so from there, you went to New York Magazine, which is sort of a mix of the two. Yeah, I was. Uh, it's not as if I were putting myself back out on the market looking for a new gig. But uh, Ben Williams, the editorial director of NYMag.com, approached me, and they were looking for someone to run, revamp, launch the blogs on the site. And that was like a very long process of discussions with him. And it was the kind of thing I couldn't pass up. It was uh, compared to what I understood about other companies and my own experiences. New York Mag, even back then, really got the web and understood the importance of it. And there was no redheaded stepchild thing going on. Where it wasn't the B team. wasn't the B team, yeah. So you do that for a few years, and then you end up back at Gawker Media? Yeah, I missed it. Um, you know, we all Which just... This, this, was, this was unusual. I think, um, the, again, the, sort of the perception of Gawker was everyone gets burnt out, spit out. Mm-hmm. You end up hating Nick Denton. Terrible things have happened to you. And in return, you, you know, you've, you've gotten a career, but you're never going to come back to Gawker. Right. And then you did. Well, I, I came back for Jezebel, which is... Quite a different experience. Uh-huh. But uh, I got to the point with New York Mag, which I loved it, and it's really where I learned to be a manager and learned to be an editor and you know, came to understand the business. I also, at a point, realized there was only so much farther I could go with it. Like, um, you hit a wall, ambition-wise. So I had an opportunity to run Jezebel, which was something that, I'd, you know, I was friendly with everybody at the company still. I was friendly with Anna Holmes. I'd always been very much a dedicated reader. And this is the Gawker Media... Women's blog. Women's blog. Still. That's a funny way of saying it. Yeah. W- women's site, you sure. know. Sure. Any way you say it, it's I mean, do we even funny. call them blogs anymore? I was thinking about this. How When did bloggers become journalists? People who write things? Yeah. Good. But it's interesting. I've noticed it, and it's not to say... Like, I, I've yeah. never liked the word blogger. I remember going on panels where they'd say, how do you pitch bloggers? Well, well, they're just the writers. Their email works the same way. But ten years later, finally, yeah. the, the the phrase like "oh, they're just a blogger" that seems to have finally been put to bed. I eh, mostly for the most part. Yeah. Let's say in context where it used to be what you would toss around, you don't hear that. But so you went to run the Gawker Media Lady site. Yes, the women's website, um, and uh, I was the second editor there, and it was uh, I really missed the freedom of Gawker Media. I, uh, those sites operated as their own planets in kind of a larger, you know, Nick Denton universe. But I missed that freedom very much. And 
while Gawker.com was like a totally different beast and a different era for the company. Like now there was an office with office supplies. <laughs> you know, the, the, the company was growing up. Health insurance, maybe? Yes. Yeah. Health insurance. Um, actually, salary. Salary. It was big. Um, <laughs> a living wage. So I really wanted to go back to that Um that level of freedom, but in a more professional environment, it seemed like a good opportunity for me to really spread my wings and see how, like really gauge what a targeted audience is like, something very specific, like general interest women stuff. And this is still an era where people are, we should start thinking about Facebook and how we publish for <laughs> Facebook. But but Nick Denton at that time is saying, no, we're, we're, we're Gawker.com, we're Jezebel.com, we're, we're not doing any of that. We're not going to work for Facebook, essentially. Uh, at that time, so when I went back over, I want to say it was 08? No, no, that's not right. No, it was 2010 that I went yeah. back over. So we were not in a place where we were ignoring Facebook. Like, in fact, I remember there being kind of like office competitions to see how many likes you could get on your Facebook page, like your site page within a given day. Um, so we weren't ignoring it. But in terms of like building out like major strategies and teams, right, like absolutely When we were talking not. earlier, you are saying platform first, right? The, the, the idea that you, yeah. you do distributed content and you publish yeah. stuff specifically for Snapchat, that's yeah. that's a new idea. It's now conventional wisdom. Yeah. At the time, it was still crazy. Yeah. When I, when I came out of Gawker Media Round 2, it was like this whole new world from which I'd been sheltered. Which is a blessing and a curse, right? But yeah. um, you know, so I, I leave you know the nest again, and I was like, oh, I used to write the Facebook headlines myself. What do you mean? You know, <laughs> it's like that's not how it works anymore. Is that the biggest change now? So do you, do you sort of think over? Uh, you started it started at what two thousand four, twenty seventeen. Yeah, for a while. <laughs> uh, do you think that's the biggest change in in digital publishing? Is this idea yeah. that you're publishing for multiple platforms? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, this idea that you are creating content and telling stories for the platform and crafting these stories very specific to the audience on that platform. And that that's very new, comparatively speaking. So the new conventional wisdom is if, if you want to succeed on Snapchat, you just can't repurpose the stuff that you made for Correct. Facebook. Um, you've got to have a dedicated team. Mm -hmm. So I believe all that. It still seems like you're still going to end up taking the same story and maybe do it with a vertical video instead of a non-vertical video. Um, can you really, I mean, are you really making stuff from scratch that's only seen on Snapchat? Uh, yes and no. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Or we create additions that are focused on one topic that we certainly don't have a package on the website to right. go to that topic. Yes, we make use of stories that are on the site to work into the edition, but we're not actually using the stories themselves. We're using like, okay, this iPhone rumor, let's take that, put it in an edition as a part of like seven different snaps having to do with so Whatever. some of the raw elements are there, but you still mm -hmm. have to create stuff. It yeah. seems super taxing. It is. Um, but Especially it's at Mashable, where you've really got to do it at scale. Like Recode, we're, we're a small operation, and we yeah. want to know that same pressure to create a Snapchat channel. Yeah. Um, but you guys have to do that. Yeah, and it's uh, our Snapchat is very successful. So that's what, what we're doing is working, and it's really focused on tech. And we have our deputy tech editor oversees it and runs a team that is part studios, which, you know, the visual and then part editorial in terms of story selection and how we're writing it and how we're telling it. You went to Michigan, right? I did. So, uh, see, I do some research. So, <laughs> so uh, let's imagine you're graduating from Michigan this spring, 2017. You Oof. would like to get into media. Oh, God, I would be foolish. What does that career path look like, do you think? Oh, man. I knew I knew this would come up. Or how do you hire? I mean, are you hiring 22, 23, 24 oh, yeah. Where are you finding them? Um. <laughs> 
we pluck them yeah, from the streets. Yeah, you harvest them. <laughs> we, we grow them on our own <laughs> cornfield. No, um, you know, the, the career path now is go get a job in a newsroom. Go work for a media company. I would say if you'd asked me that. So it's still go to New York, go to L.A., go to the hub of the media industry. Mm-hmm. The idea of being in St. Louis or a third ring suburb kind of, of St. Louis. You know, where, where do you want to go with that career? Right. Like, do you want to be... Uh, shoe leather journalism, hardcore investigative reporting, like go to St. Louis, own stories there, and then climb up from there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it still strikes me that like for as as distributed as the internet is, Mm -hmm. the industries, the jobs are still centered in these handful of cities. I know. It's uh, as... As much as we want to say the internet lets you do everything from everywhere, it's become increasingly focused in New York and LA. Yeah. And San Francisco. So, 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 someone who's walking into your your newsroom for the first time, they're right. twenty two, twenty three, twenty four. Uh-huh. They worked where before? Uh, some of them are. You know, we hire a lot of interns. Yeah. People who go through one or two rounds of our internship program. So some some of our journalists, this is their first job. Which is kind of, I've never worked at a place where we've been so diligent and open to hiring interns, which is really cool. I like that. I like um, working with people from the get-go um, and watching that growth and helping them find that growth. Uh, people who have been at other places prior, um, you know, people who are in their mid-20s, late-20s, uh, you know, uh, Huffington Post or uh, Mental Floss or uh, Business Insider, some of the people we've brought on recently. And what do you think they think their career path looks like, right? So when you went to Gawker, mm-hmm. your thought was not, I'm going to be blogging mm-hmm. for many years. I'm going to go eventually get that job at Condé Nast. Right. Um, I'm assuming they probably don't think about that career path, or maybe they do. Um, I'm not sure that they do, especially if you're digital first. It's... In, just speaking from experience, to start digital first and then crossover can be really difficult. Yeah. But uh, if you want to be an editor, you're probably seeing your career path digital. If you want to be a writer, you might be more open to whatever happens next. But I think in general, you look at a job, especially as you're younger, you look at jobs at places like Mashable where you can make your name. Make your name. Uh, I hate the phrase personal brand because yeah. I don't think that's necessarily applicable here. But uh, make a name for yourself. Uh, have people know who you are based on your work and then start shopping around. You know, not necessarily at Mashable, but anywhere. Don't leave Mashable. Like, stay at Mashable. Stay at Mashable forever. Um, it does strike me that, that, I mean, look, that's part of the recode pitch, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a small site. You own a beat. People mm-hmm. will know who you are because you cover – commerce really well mm-hmm. or uber really well um it seems like at, at the bigger sites at the business insiders but also mm-hmm. the mashables right yeah. there's a lot of people there mm-hmm. you're probably doing a bunch of different stuff it seems harder to build out your personal brand the it seems like the media companies are less interested in again gawker is another example where you mm-hmm. can make a name for yourself by doing yeah. a specific thing it seems like that's harder to do at a mashable oh uh, absolutely but um that is Still not what i at a large, the larger the organization, the more difficult it is to do that. But I don't believe that personally. So my approach is very much identifying you know, rising talent and rising stars, and you know, seeing those opportunities with younger writers and really pushing them to uh, develop them, develop their skills. So we've talked about this a few times. The, the uh, Mashable, like everyone else, has said the video is the future. The video future is video. Mark Andreessen just said the future is video. Oh, video, video, video. <laughs> I'll make sense logically. I, there's certainly a commercial opportunity there. For someone like me, mm-hmm. doesn't do video that much. Uh, someone like you who's made your living in words. Do mm-hmm. you think about, all right, I've got I've to recalibrate what I do to flourish in a video world? Do you figure, all right, someone else is going to figure out video. I'm going to keep typing. 
Uh, <laughs> no, I'm certainly not going to keep ty typing. I think uh, a lot of, if we've got a story that we've published, I will often take that story and say to the video people, you know what, you might be able to do something with this. There might be a jumping off point here. Maybe you do just want to repackage it, or maybe you want to do something more in depth here. Maybe there's the beginning of an idea here that could become a series or what have you. Uh, on the other hand, like when we're tossing around ideas and brainstorming meetings, a lot of times it's hit the pause button. Actually, that would be a really great video. So we don't do a lot of, like we don't do one-off videos necessarily, yeah. but if someone's got an idea that could be part of a series or we could franchise it out in some way, then I'm going to stop the writing and explore that. So it's in your head, Always. even though you're going you're gonna to hand it off and, and, and it's not your expertise, but you're right. comfortable with that notion. Yeah, it? yeah. I, I'm not recoil. a producer. I, right. Like you said, I'm, I'm a words person. I am ideas and voice and brand. So here's the story I want to tell. I take that to the very qualified studios team and I say, okay, you figure out how to tell it and the best way to tell it. And if we should be telling it, if we have the resources to tell it, go. They know what they're doing. I don't know that part of it and I respect their expertise. <laughs> in a week, you're going to be hanging out South by Southwest in Austin with? Mm -hmm. uh, Cookie Monster. <laughs> explain, explain how you went from, well, I'm going to go through your whole career. What's the deal, Cookie Monster? What are you doing with them? Um, can I get in on the Cookie Monster action? I'll be there as well. I would love it if you would come by. Deal. We, we could definitely do some sort of cookie segment with you. Um, so what Mashable is doing is we have a deal with Twitter to do a live broadcast uh, March 10th, 11th, 12th. Wait, you're going to be on video. I'm going to be on video. So there, there we just right? solve the whole See? problem. You know, it's, it all comes together. It's you know, a wonderful media content ecosystem. Uh, yeah, we have a three-day deal with Twitter where we're going to do live broadcasts for three days, uh, the 10th, the 11th, 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern for 90 minutes, end plug. And it's going to be a kind of a, it's going to be a high energy talk show. Uh -huh. It's very much segments. We'll do interviews. We will do performances, comedy, music, uh, exclusive guests. And, and you're going to interview Cookie Monster or he's performing? Cookie Monster is a host. Oh, excellent. He's, a, he's one will of my Will you be on camera with the monster? I, I hope so. Yeah. I too. certainly hope so. Um, in terms of like how we organize, <laughs> because there are multiple hosts. Yeah. It's uh, it's Cookie, it's Tracy Edward, our one of our social editors, uh, Carrie Doherty, who's a comedian, and myself. So so we're joking here, but the whole idea that that you do do multiple things, right? Mm -hmm. You type and you edit, yeah. and and you can be on camera with or mm -hmm. without Cookie Monster. Like this is now part of the job requirement. Yeah, there's a way to do this without yeah. ever going on camera, right? Or making a podcast or recording video or whatever it is, <clears throat> yeah. but it's better if you are comfortable with some version of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, whether I'm on camera or not really doesn't make a difference to me, but I'm still typing before that. I'm still looking at scripts. I'm still you know, talking to people about, okay, we have an opportunity to interview this director. Well, this director has produced a movie that is kind of, you know, how do we want to cover it? What's, what's the story that is right for us? Yeah. So I'm still very involved in making sure the content we're choosing for this live, uh, this live show is on brand for us. It's fun, right? It is fun. Say it's fun. Good. Okay, I'm glad you said it's fun. <laughs> I was talking with Janine Gibson, uh, who was this really high flying, still is a high flying editor, but it was going to at one point going to run the New York Times, mm -hmm. and then last fall she was producing a, a, a actually for Twitter again, uh, a live broadcast uh, for the for the election night for BuzzFeed. Yeah. Right. So this is yeah, this and, is what happens to you these and days. And I believe your uh, colleagues at The Verge did it for CES. They did it. There are other people at Vox Media may one day work for Twitter mm -hmm. or with Twitter. 
You never know. Jessica Cohen, thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for making it happen. I hope you guys like listening to this. I like recording it. Um, Since you're smart, you know where to find more stuff like this. Um, You can find it at Recode.net, Spotify, SoundCloud. You're clever. I don't need to tell you how to find a podcast because you are listening to a podcast. That said, um, if you want more stuff like this but recorded live... Go to Recode Replay, where you can hear stuff from the Code Media Conference, which we had last month. Eddie Q from Apple, Marty Barron from the Washington Post, Stacey Snyder, who run Fox. See, it's all full circle. Um, you can hear all that for free. Kara Swisher does Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge does Too Embarrassed to Ask. It's all free. It's all for you. You're welcome. It's free to you in part because of our sponsors, Amazon Web Services and HostGator. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells those ads. Thanks again, Jessica. Thanks to you guys. I will see you next week. <laughs>